0: The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers.
1: This week on Science for the People, we're looking at the intersection of music, art, and science. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Dr. Stefan Alexander, a professor of physics at Brown University and the winner of the 2013 American Physical Society Boucher Award. He is also a jazz musician and recently finished recording his first electronic jazz album with Aaron Rio. He is also the author of the recent book, The Jazz of Physics, The Secret Link Between Music and the Structure of the Universe. Stefan, welcome. Welcome. Great to be here. So you start this book by talking about the importance of analogies in physics, both for communicating physics, but also for conceptualizing it as well. Why is analogy such an important tool in the physics toolbox?
0: Yeah, I think it's because it's deeply connected to our intuition, how we intuit physics. As you know, some of the greatest discoveries in physics um, came through the intuition, such as like Albert Einstein's discovery of special relativity, he would construct thought experiments, so-called Gedanken experiments. And so analogies is a, a gateway into the intuition.
1: It's interesting to hear you use the word intuition. In a lot of cases, scientists kind of shy away from the word intuition, or at least our perception is that you would shy away from intuition, like it's somehow not rigorous enough.
0: Yeah, that that is true. And there's definitely, you know, I would say a school of thought and um in my field i mean i work in um theoretical physics and as you know that the language we speak there is uh, mathematics to get by not to get by but to actually as as um, our mode of research but both i would say that you know for me both are, both are essential and um come you know developing your intuition or using your and using your intuition can be a Really good tool. As long as you accept that you might be wrong um, the first 3,000 takes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so is it maybe a case of you need to be able to follow your intuition but not necessarily trust it?
0: It's a fine line. I mean, it's one of these things that comes with experience. That's, you know, like music is a good example of that. Sports is another good example. You know, you you pra- it's Yeah, you practice. You um, if at the end of the day, you know, the right, you come to the right answer, then the means just, I guess the just, at the end justify the means. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I have definitely been, uh, told previously that math and I'm sure physics as well are not uh, a quote unquote spectator sports. You really have to kind of roll up your sleeves and really get into them in order to understand them.
0: That's true. Um, and it's certainly different than say Taken courses in math or physics because there you're given well-defined problems, you know, problem sets or examinations, um, and um, there's a you know a well-defined answer. And oftentimes in research, that you know you, you hope that when you come to an answer, it's a unique answer. But it is at, at the level of research, it is a spec. It's it's not a spectator sport. That's right.
1: Uh, As a layperson, I probably unsurprisingly find analogies incredibly helpful for understanding complex physics theories and ideas. Uh, Analogies as communication strategies makes complete sense to me because I use them all the time. Um, uh, But I've also been cautioned that analogies are often kind of imperfect or break down or fall apart if we lean on them too much. Uh, Is there a balance to be struck between analogy and sort of more rigorous approaches?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think that what, what what analogies are good for is you have a concept or an idea that you are very familiar with. It's like a sec- it's like second nature. You really understand it well, and then there's something you don't understand well. This is a, the object of research, let's say, and if you find a good analogy, it takes you far enough to the point where you actually realize that the analogy breaks down. And it's exactly where the analogy breaks down that you, you, you know there's something new and you focus on on that unknown part of the analogy. And, um, so in a sense, what, it, what the analogy is doing is filtering out that which is known versus that which is not known.
1: Interesting. I had never heard it described that way before, and that makes a lot of sense to me.
0: Yeah, and it actually, it, it does help me a lot in my research. Um, and other, you know, and other, um, colleagues as well. And, you know, it's something I use with my, my, um, graduate students. Um, we don't, we don't really start a problem off by just doing a, a blind calculation. Um, calculations are precious, you know, so we, 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 we don't get there quite yet. We actually come up with good analogies, come up with good intuitions, and we, um, sometimes say very silly things. Um, and then, you know, after being wrong a couple of times, it, it gives us a sense of where in the dark room we're at.
1: I feel like to be a good researcher, you have to, to get really comfortable with being wrong most of the time.
0: Yes, you do. <laughs> um, <laughs> and this is, I think, something that we need to, well, this is something that I try to make more explicit in my, in teaching actually, because students can be hard on themselves or each other if they are uncomfortable with um with being wrong and oftentimes that 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 is it seems to be a part of um our academic culture you know being right um on the first take uh, or there's something wrong with you if you're not right all the time
1: that's probably reinforced by the fact that as a public, we we that's kind of pushed at us at school to kind of be right and that there is always a for sure right answer. But also the fact that we only hear about the research that's considered quote unquote right because it's been published or it's getting a lot of accolades. And so we don't see all of the, the attempted half papers or uh, the research that ended up not going anywhere and thus has been sort of shunted into the drawer.
0: Absolutely. That's totally, I totally agree with that. Yes.
1: So one of our most famous physicists, Albert Einstein was famously known for his thought experiments and analogies related to relativity. Uh, Do you know if he used these just to communicate his ideas? Or did his path to having the ideas of relativity also include these analogies in his own thought process? I guess I'm asking, did he lean on his analogies to understand his own ideas as much as we do now?
0: Absolutely. I mean, it was it was a it was key for for him. Um, you know, Albert Einstein um one of his thought experiments that he I uh, be, start began like when he was 16 years old, he wanted to understand if he could catch up to a beam of light. What would he see? And then he realized that there was a paradox in what he would see, which is that he would see that the Beam of light, which is made up of an electric electromagnetic field, would be static, and then he found that that would be inconsistent with a, an observer that is not moving, because that beam of light actually would be would be moving, so would be oscillating rather, um, like a wave, and so that analogy and where the analogy broke down, and in that case it wasn't really an analogy. In that case, it was um, using his intuition, but the, the the point there it got it got him to a to a, to a paradox and unveiling that paradox or resolving that paradox led, led him or was one of the things that led him to his theory of special, the breakthrough of the theory of special relativity. Oh. So there was no calculation done so far at that point.
1: Yeah. So the calculations sort of come later. It's trying to, to play around with the concepts
0: that right. gets That's you,
1: right. that gets you going, I guess.
0: That gets you going. Or sometimes you, it, it, um, it gives you, you actually realize the answer right there and then. And then what the calculation, is, what the calculation does, it deepens or leads to, um, some predictions that you otherwise wouldn't have seen with the pure intuition.
1: I know a lot of mathematicians and something that I hear from them sometimes in when they're talking about their research and uh, trying very gamely and valiantly to <laughs> explain it to me. Uh, they do quite well is that they can feel something is right, and they just have to kind of figure out how to prove that it's right. But there's this feeling that something just makes makes sense and is correct.
0: Yeah, I would say a similar thing happens in, in physics research. Um, you have a gut feeling, you have an intuition. I guess even these words are analogies <laughs> for, <laughs> yeah. for um, sort of, you know, the picture you have in your head. And what happens is that this picture that you tra- that you have in your head is first starts of be- as being very blurry, and then gets more and more refined as you as you employ these different tools um, in um, in your research, um, such as analogies or the math, or even different types of math, or even drawing diagrams. That's another way of um, of approaching problems too.
1: So, uh, on the other side, I did not realize that physics had influenced some of John Coltrane's work as much as it seems to. Uh, Can you give us a little taste of how physics inspired Coltrane?
0: Yeah. Um, so one, so one thing that Coltrane, so Coltrane was highly influenced by, um, a Russian composer, Slaminsky. And Slaminsky had a system where he would, he would divide the musical scale You know, you can represent the notes on the musical scale by a circle. So, like, the hands of a clock in a circle from um, 1 o'clock to 12 o'clock could be represented by the 12 um, notes in the musical scale. So you already have a geometric representation of of the musical scales via this, what we call, clock geometry um, or clock arithmetic. Um, So, anyway... You can, um, divide that into, into certain geometric forms that, um, have certain, enjoy certain nice, um, certain symmetries. So you can imagine dividing up the musical scale, um, in, into equilateral triangles. And that would give you certain scales. These scales are called, um, symmetric scales. They have a very peculiar sound. Anyway, so Coltrane was very much aware of this use of geometry. And at the same time, he expressed to one of his friends, David Amram, who was um, a composer for the, one of the first, if not the first composer for the New York Philharmonic. I believe this was sometime in the, sometime in the 60s or the 50s. Um, in my book, the, the date is specified there. And, and this is discussed in, in, in great detail there. So anyway, he expressed to Amram that he had been reading a lot of Einstein. And that he realized that what Einstein did for physics, which was to take very complex and disparate ideas in physics and unified them with a simple principle, that he wanted to do the same thing for music and that he was trying to do the same thing for his music. And that's, kind of, that's very interesting. It's very peculiar because Coltrane understood that what Einstein was doing was using the invariance principle. The invariance, for example, the invariance of the speed of light, the fact that the speed of light is the same for different observers. And that underlying this invariance principle is the use of symmetry. Um, So in a lot of ways, the word invariance actually has to do with, you know, certain transformations that you can make within a geometry. And there are certain things that will remain the same. For example, a circle, right, is a a one-dimensional geometry. (laughs) And you can rotate the radius in a circle, right? Mm-hmm. And something will remain the same in that geometry, which will be, you know, the, the length of the, of the radius. And all points will look the same on a circle with respect to a rotation of, around the circle. So again, Coltrane realized this, that, you know, the use of symmetry in, in um, Einstein's theory was the tool or was the concept that led to the invariance of the speed of light um, in, in the theory of special relativity. And that he was also going to use symmetry. In his music, and if you listen to his album, Giant Steps, it's all based on on these symmetric scales, or these symmetric divisions of of the musical scale, as a way of getting around certain chord changes. So that's an example of where Coltrane was inspired by Albert Einstein. Uh,
1: There's a few visuals in your book of how music can be represented and understood geometrically, including something called Coltrane's Mandala. What does the Mandala diagram convey about musical theory?
0: Yeah, good. So the the Coltrane's Mandela um, is sort of like the uber, like, you know, like the uber theory. It's sort of like what string theory is to the special relativity, okay? Meaning that the string theory basically t- takes Albert Einstein's idea of symmetry and invariance and takes it, not only, takes it to all the forces of nature, right? So in string theory, there is a meta-geometry Um that now relates all the forces that allows you to put all of the forces of nature on the same symmetric footing and so what coltrane's mandala is it's a diagram that coltrane came up with that in a sense generalizes the musical scale the the um the clock geometry of um our western musical scale so what it is in you know without going into too much detail is instead of like um what coltrane devised was not just a A twelve-note cycle, but a sixty, but a sixty-note cycle that had other symmetric relationship related in different types of scales to each other that you wouldn't see explicitly with with the twelve-tone or with the clock geometry of of our um, twelve-tone system and music.
1: I love the idea of a kind of unified theory of music that sort of underpins what we find enjoyable or what we find intrinsically beautiful about music that we listen to.
0: That's right. Yeah, that's kind of where he was. That's why I thought I, I, you know, my book, I I theorize about that the same way I would theorize about a physical theory. Um, So I play that kind of game and theorize that that is what he was after. And again, it was his own system, and that's kind of interesting in its own right, because what you have there is a jazz musician that is employing similar strategies as a theoretical physics for his music.
1: So you yourself are both a physicist and a musician. Do you identify more strongly as a physicist or more strongly as a musician, or is that question just kind of silly on its face?
0: Well, it, it, you know, I have my days. The, the days where I suck, um, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, I identify more as a physicist. And the the days that I feel like a horrible physicist, I identify more as a musician. So I'm kind of like one of these schizophrenic types of, you know, um, tormented souls.
1: I think it's kind of handy to have something you can go to and say, well, at least I'm still really good at this.
0: Yeah, it's called denial.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We all need a little denial in our life some days, I think. (laughs) So how long have you loved and played music?
0: Um, I started music off, I mean, I started when I was eight years old, I started the classical piano for five years, and didn't like practicing, oh, let's put it this way, my lack of practice um forced my grandmother to just give up, who paid for piano lessons and say, listen, I'm not wasting my money on you, <laughs> but, um, but then I picked up the saxophone, uh, my parents brought home a used saxophone um, when I was 13, and I've been playing the saxophone since then, so and I'm 45 now, so... I don't know. Forgot how to add uh, something like uh, thirty that's a, years. That's yeah. a
1: long love affair with the saxophone.
0: Um, love and you know, love and love and hate affair. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> and what about physics? When did an interest in physics first spark?
0: Oh, that sparked in um, that was sparked in um, in, in high school. Um, in, um, when I took my first physics class. Um, but I was always an inquisitive child. I mean, the music in a lot of ways, trying to understand what made music work was sort of like already a scientific, um, you know, sort of thing. And, um, yeah, um, I'm at loss for that word, but you know, um, curiosity. Mm. Um, so that started in 10th grade.
1: So the two aren't the the sort of real love of the two is not that far apart actually it's been a long love affair with physics as
0: well yeah yeah i've been i've been um i've been you know thinking about physics for quite a while
1: so in your book and indeed it seems throughout your life you found many physicists who are also musicians um And reading it reminded me how many mathematicians I know who are also musicians. Do you think there's something about a mind that is attracted to mathematical or physics based thinking that maybe also makes it attracted to music or vice versa?
0: I think yes and no. I think like it's sort of like one of those statements. Um, let's see. A square is a rectangle, but a rectangle is not a square. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that there are, there's a subset of, um, of musicians that could care less about science and there's a subset of sci, of, of, of physicists that could care less about music. But then there is, um, within that, no, then there's a larger group of people, um, sci- scientists that are interested that have this, um, love affair with, with music and vice versa. Um, now I do think that, I do think that, um, you know, that there is some kind of connection between why a person would be interested in both. But I don't know what that would, what that is, or what that, you know, why that is.
1: There does seem to be, I don't know. And again, I haven't run the numbers, so this could just be pure bias, but it does seem to, to be a, a higher number of people than I would expect in the quote-unquote hard sciences that are drawn to music in a, in a in a more deep way or in a more sort of aggressive way. Like, everyone likes to listen to music, but really kind of engaging with music personally.
0: Yeah, well, maybe maybe there's... Um, if that is the case, and I, I do agree with you, by the way, um, then there needs to be some interest in neuroscience research trying to figure out why that might be the case. Maybe there's something going on in the mind the brains of um, those individuals
1: I would definitely uh, follow that research that would be really interesting yes. Um, one of the core themes in your book is that physics, in particular, the way you do physics can be done in an improvisa- improvisational manner, uh, not all that different from improvisational jazz. So uh, first, could you maybe talk about how improv and jazz works and what's involved? Because improvise kind of conjures up ideas of just playing any old thing and hoping it all sounds okay on the other end. Um, but jazz improvisation takes a lot of skill and practice.
0: Yes, and so, like, you know, as you uh, had different levels of that, it's sort of like saying everyone could run, but an Olympian, you know, had, you know, pretty much of practice running <laughs> a lot more than everyone else that could run. So, like, improvisation in, in jazz is, uh, is similar, meaning that, you know, because jazz, first of all, is a very, it's traditionally, historically been a very inclusive, um, art form, meaning that, you know, everyone is allowed to go up and, and jam and, and improvise with everyone else. And it's understood that everyone has, it will be coming in there with different skill sets. And so a big part of the music is knowing how to, as a musician, how to accommodate and how to create space musically for different skill sets and how to make meaningful music given that. So in other words, if you're somebody that's very skilled and then there's a novice that comes and plays with you, you have to create space so that, you know, collectively you you know, you sound, you, you sound as best as you possibly could. And that's important. I'll, I'll probably get back to that in a second. But in jazz improvisation, of course, there is a huge reliance on in the moment creating something and trying to create something unique, trying to create music that you haven't played before. Um, so there's that, there's a tension between sort of executing that and also the sort of, uh, um, the ease at which or the, or facilitating that type, facilitating, executing unique, um, and in the moment music. And that facilitation rests on, um, you know, a certain practice or, uh, or certain, um, or let me just say it. That in the music, you do have structure, so in jazz music it isn't just about let me just get up on my instrument and just play any old thing because you're, you what you're going to play is actually informed by a harmonic structure, meaning that the at the very least you know the music is played in a certain key, mm-hmm. and so to to sound harmonically correct it, it's best to play the notes in that key, and if you're going to play a note outside of the key, usually you're playing something that is related to that key. Right. So, you know, um, so there are lots of examples of that. Um, and, you know, sometimes the chords may change um, as you, you know, as you, as the music unfolds in time. So that's another structure. And also there's another structure called repetition, which is that in the blues scale, for example, you know, every, there are 12 beats per bar. Right. I'm sorry. Four beats per bar. Let's mm-hmm. say, and there are 12 bars in the blues scales, um, for the, um, that repeat itself. All right. So that there's, in a sense, a, a cyclical nature of the music. And so this informs a harmonic and a rhythmic structure that the improv, that actually aids the improviser, um, and informs the improviser as to what's agreeable in the music and what's not. Now, again, that's just, you know, You have very advanced players that are aware of that, and then you know the music gets very interesting when you start breaking those rules in in interesting ways, or you start playing, um, you know, around playing interesting rhythms um, rhythmically. Um, But it's all relative to the informed structure.
1: You sort of need the structure in order for the broken rules to make sense and be interesting.
0: That's, you'll find that in, yeah, in, um, in a lot of great jazz music. Miles Davis would do, uh, was a master at, at breaking the rules in very interesting ways.
1: It seems like with, uh, like as with physics, it takes, uh, a deep knowledge to a point of intuition to be able to improvise like that, to kind of know all that without having to think too hard about it in the moment, I guess.
0: Absolutely. And again, it You know, it, it's not like for, for most mortal physicists like myself, it's not something that you're really born with. It's something that comes from experience. It comes from practicing and comes from being exposed to well to other ideas and other techniques and calculations that have been tried already uh, or that, you know, is correct. Um, but, you know, sometimes you strike goal and sometimes you get lucky and, 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 and have a, an insane idea. That comes out of nowhere, and um, it, it 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 can help you get somewhere so uh,
1: better understanding improvisation in jazz and how that frame how that framework works, how can that help us with physics? What parts of learning to improvise musically can help a physicist in their research efforts, or perhaps a more precise question is how has it helped you
0: yeah i think I think the part of the improvisation that that I find to be helpful, um, if you were to borrow, borrowing from, from jazz is the in the moment type of improvisation. So, so to play in the moment, you have to surrender to the fact that you're going to probably say something or think something very dumb and stupid. So why that's useful is, um, then it becomes about accepting that if you do play something, that you will play something wrong or you will say something wrong in the sense sense of research. And and let me just be more specific. If I'm interacting, so a lot of times, um, physics, theoretical physics research um, occurs with other researchers. So let's say me and my students, we're working on a problem together, me and my colleagues. And so we're in the moment Coming up with ideas of thinking through something. So that's similar to like a group improvisation where we have groups of musicians playing in the moment. So if someone is saying something, that's like a musician soloing, then the other musicians have to support that solo. So that's one interesting thing. So if I say something to my colleagues, um, and, and, you know, we're working on something, let's say, and I say something that is just wrong, it's stupid, um, what my other colleagues might do is to take that idea and throw it back at me. They wouldn't judge it. They wouldn't. They would just take the idea and say, "Oh, that's interesting." Or, "What about this?" And they would throw the idea back at me. Well, that's kind of interesting. That's like call and response in in, in group improvisation. Mm-hmm. And so when they they transform the idea, they throw it back at me, and then I, it makes me realize, "Oh my goodness, okay, the, I said something. It wasn't quite that, but now it's this," and I throw that back at them. And then it ends up basically generating something that it originally wasn't and might be something interesting. That's one way in which, um, um, so that in the moment improvisation, um, in the context of, you know, a group of scientists, a group, um, working together on a problem that, that I find that to be useful. And with that, it takes actually being inclusive. It takes not judging a wrong idea and it takes accepting and embracing mistakes, right? Um, so that's that. I find that to be very interesting and very useful. And then the second thing I find interesting is, um, I guess I already talked about that. The second thing I find interesting is actually embracing mistakes. Um, the 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 valuing mistakes.
1: You talked as well about how in. In improvising jazz, you leave space for everybody's abilities and leave space for for people's talents, uh, both the people who have a high level of expertise and the people who have come up to jam and are maybe earlier on in their in their career, earlier on in their experience. But that you you provide space for those people to do what they can do best. Is that also useful to you in physics? That sort of allowing somebody to uh, to I don't know. I'm trying to. I'm trying to think about the best way to <laughs> to make the analogy, which yeah. is sort of allowing people to to show their own talent.
0: Yes, um, that's. I think you said it just right there. Um, so everyone will have different skill sets and different abilities, um, and then there's some super people that they're that, that just good at everything, and that's useful too. <laughs> and so if you if if someone says something you know what i find interesting is that and i talk about this in my book is that i was fortunate to have um, been trained or and then also to learn from um some of the some of the most able physicists on the planet and one of the things i found interesting about some of those individuals is that i mean i would just say the dumbest things around them and they would find something in that and find it interesting um and sometimes they would think they would they would you know, remark to themselves that this is something they would never think about, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, I, I, you know, I definitely find that with, with, with my students, like sometimes it's, it's like, I guess, you know, we all have blind spots and sometimes what someone thinks might be a very dumb thing to say is, um, it could be useful. Now, this does not, okay. This does not excuse crack pottery, right? I mean, so this does not, you know, say that any old thing you can say is going to be useful um but it does leave room for you know for being in, for for allowing um new ideas no matter how ridiculous they may first sound to be um taken you know, get taken seriously
1: there was a, a line I highlighted in the beauty of noise chapter, which I I really love, and I've been doodling it on on various notepapers. Which is uh, then it happened as I was soloing with the equation of d brains on a piece of napkin. I really love the image of you doing a physics calculation as soloing with it, sort of in a cafe on a napkin. I I love that image, and it's such a great line that sort of captures. These the way these two fields kind of merge for you in a really interesting way.
0: Oh, thank you. You know, I, it's so funny. That This is a perfect example of what I was just saying because I thought that that was a really stupid thing to say. <laughs> you no, know, it, it was such a, one of these like um, frolicky, childish things to say, and I felt it was like literally. Li- a literary um faux pas
1: it very much uh in that sort of line expresses I think the way you were trying to show that you think about both physics and music. And it it's just one of those lines that has stuck with me. So uh it's it's a wonderful little way to, to describe that. Um so I'm curious, just before uh, we we sign off, I'm curious how you found the process of recording your first jazz album. Uh, did you find anything in physics to help you through that process in the same way that jazz has helped you through your research?
0: Um, the recording part of the album, um, yes and no. I mean, I, I, as you know, I did this album with um, electronic musician Aaron Ryu. Um, and, um, he... I would say he knew a lot more of the physics than I did because he was able to, you know, one of the things that he was very good at was um sound synthesis. So he would make a lot of his, the sounds and the album. It was an electronic jazz album, if the term exists. If it doesn't, I just created it. Hmm. Um So basically it, um, you know, it had me, it featured me on the saxophone, but then there was a lot of electronic uh, music backing or supporting the solos. So, um, the album was very impro- improvised. Um, but in terms of, um, you know, aside from the fact that a lot of the sounds are made by, by manipulating waveforms, um, some of the concepts, yeah, some some of the, the concepts in physics, um, if you look at the titles of the songs on that album, you know, there's a song called A Brief History of Time where I, um, I do a spoken word, an improvised spoken word about the Big Bang Theory and the Evolution of the Universe and what um un, you know what unfolded in the evolution of the universe. Um so some of the concepts um in in physics were we played with some of these concepts um in the um in the album. Um we had another song called "Onet's Vortex, which was um named after one of my heroes and mentors, Ornet Coleman um um one of the fathers of, of free jazz and so that was like a free jazz piece um but we played around with the idea of the vortex the idea of um you know this um this structure in that finds itself um in all different types of physical phenomena including the eye of a storm right um the the idea of the vortex and we we played sonically with we, we actually created a vortex by using feedback loops okay and um in some of the um sound oscillators um that were creating the sound synthesis so you know, you would find like you know very subtle applications of of modern physics in the album and it's up to the listener to this to to figure out where where that is <laughs>
1: I've listened to uh, a couple of the pieces, including A Brief History of Time, and it's, I really enjoyed listening to it. Um, it's one of those things that I can see myself playing as I work my day job, which is programming. So I uh, thank you very much for the background music while I code.
0: Oh, thank you so much. I, 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 I play it when I'm driving. <laughs> ah, excellent.
1: I, I don't really think of, um, you mentioned sort of that it's an improv based album, which kind of hits me in a strange place thinking about the idea of recording an album, but also improvising. You think of like when you get to a recording studio that you're really, really practiced and you know exactly what you're going to do. So the idea of, of improvising an album, uh, is, is kind of interesting to me. I would be, it, I feel like that would be something really cool to watch and listen to as it happens.
0: Yeah, that's right. I forgot to say the entire album was improvi- improvised. The, the, make, the making of the, of the album was completely improvised. Oh, you are very talented, sir. Um, thanks for saying that. I don't feel that way most days. Well, <laughs> so,
1: I, I hope you feel that way today.
0: Well, thank you. I'm, I'm flattered. And I may, maybe when I drink my coffee this morning, I'll, I'll celebrate the fact that um, a very bright person said that. So, thank you.
1: Well, thank you. Now, it is my turn to be flattered. And thank you so much for uh, spending some time with me today. It's a really fascinating book, and it uh, it's wonderful to think about the way that art and science can learn from each other.
0: Oh, yes, I, I do think so. And I think that there's so much territory to be charted um in in this sort of interface in between arts and sciences
1: If you want to learn more about Stefan Alexander his physics work or his music we have some links you can follow up on the show notes for this episode which you can find at our website (laughs) scienceforthepeople.ca
2: This has been a clip from one of Stefan Alexander's tracks running from the cosmos.
1: And now, back to the show. You're listening to Science for the People. I'm your host, Rochelle Saunders. With me is Pamela Romero a Honduran painter and Emory University student pursuing a neuroscience major and computer science minor. Her current science research focuses on studying pair bonding and anxiety disorders. Pamela, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you, Rochelle. Nice to be here. So, Pamela, painter, sculptor, neuroscience, and computer science. This is quite a fascinating combination of skills, talents, and interests. How did that combination come to be?
2: Well... I guess it started with I grew up as an artist I grew up going to art classes since I was three I grew up learning to mix different media with with my art such as collage I for example I have paintings where I used I, I worked with iron I worked with mathematics I I then realized that I was really interested in and using algorithms and computer science to actually produce art as well. So that's how part of me got interested in the computer science aspect of it. And then I actually started reading some textbooks as the nerd that I am and got myself into neuroscience and fell in love with the idea of making science more accessible and understandable to the public by painting about it.
1: I love the idea that you got interested in computer science through art and through using algorithms for art. That's a really cool way that I don't think is uh, the way we usually think of people getting into computer science.
2: Yeah, I was definitely influenced by a TED Talk that that I watched once about this person who did art, created art by creating an algorithm that studied storms, so basically the algorithm would tell her what color to use, what hue to use, what value of the color to use based on what the storms and the news and the news forecast basically feed, was fed into the program. So I was really interested in sort of like how computer science can sort of be merged with the arts and an art in, in and of itself.
1: We've talked before on this show and indeed actually earlier in this very episode about combining traditional artistic skill sets with the quote-unquote hard sciences rigor. Um, As someone who is pursuing both fine art and sort of hard sciences and computing science, do you think the two complement each other?
2: I definitely do. For example, last year I worked in a behavioral lab studying drug addiction and one of the methods that was really important for me to learn was brain slicing, where you basically get, the, get your samples, get your animals, take the brains out and slice them into fine little pieces so you can then analyze it, such as what you get as a result are the images that you see in textbooks, um, such as in black and white images, or maybe immu- immunohistochemistry where like you track some protein or molecule, and what fascinated me is that it required a lot of time and patience and hand motion coordination where you actually use a slicer with paintbrushes to to um, to coordinate the brain to make sure that it's in, in the right coordinates and also to get each slice one by one and put it into formaldehyde later through paintbrushing.
1: So even the the fine motor skill that you can develop you in something like painting can come in handy depend uh, in certain types of lab work
2: oh yeah definitely definitely
1: and there's definitely a a beauty to brain slices when you see them as pictures or sometimes you see them in studies there's something really beautiful about them
2: yes, yes, I would definitely agree so I've actually one of the people that I've grown close to here at my university is called, is named Dr. Michael Knomos. So he's actually a science illustrator at Emory, where he actually gives talks about how the art of drawing brains, for example, and the art of being exact and precise, such as a science, but at the same time through art to help scientists in their work.
1: What about an awareness of some of the higher scientific concepts? What do you find that that maybe brings into your art?
2: Well, actually that's very art that's would very much influence what my area of research focuses, which is computational neuroscience where a famous scientist once said once said I I fail to understand something if I cannot model it or if I cannot replicate it. So I was really interested in how I usually tend to understand things better if I paint about it. If I share it with my community in a medium that is completely different from the medium that I usually get get it fed into my brain as, such as a lecture or some notes or a textbook. So I sort of give it my own twist and at the same time make it applicable to my own life while understanding a sometimes really hard concept.
1: It's interesting that sometimes in order to really understand a concept, we have to sort of take it out of its comfort zone and out of its little box and kind of turn it around and play with it and maybe even express it in a in a very different way.
2: Exactly. And I feel like that's something that people very uh, very often forget about science. That science isn't just a textbook, but science is in the real world and science is everywhere around us and that we interact with science on a daily basis. So why should we try to learn science as a textbook when science is all around us? And that's something that really permeated my mind and made me think about how I could use art to make people aware of that. Because it's very different when we read something as to when we see it, when we experience it, such as art.
1: Now, you are working on a really fascinating project called Elementally Latino. First of all, can you tell us what the project is?
2: Yes. So the project is basically a sculpture of the element vanadium. Vanadium is an element. It's a, it's a transition, a metal element to be exact. And it's actually rarely found in nature, which really caught my attention because as I would draw some parallels later, I chose vanadium because just as, as it is rarely found in nature, I wanted to make a parallel of, some, of a group of people that are rarely found in science. So vanadium was actually discovered by a Mexican scientist named Andres Manuel del Rio in 1801 while he was exploring some kind of lead substances. And he suspected, hey, this looks very different. It, I think, it's a new element. But other scientists mistakenly convinced him that it was not a. Oh, it's not a new element. It's just chromium, another form of chromium. And it wasn't until 1830, where, when Niels Gabriel Sefram, uh proved that Del Rio was correct and named the element vanadium. Um, and it was named vanadium after a Scandinavian goddess named Vanadis, um, because vanadium is actually since it's rarely found in nature. It's usually found um, merged with other elements, such that it changes colors depending on what count, co- type of compound it is found in. So, going back to my sculpture, I chose to, I'm choosing to model vanadium as a molecule because I'm choosing such that each atom represents a Latin American country, and the whole molecule is sort of. Purpose to bring awareness about Latin American science and how Latin American and Hispanic uh, input in science is very much, very much needed and at the same time, very much unregarded currently. I was really, really impressed and really saddened by a, by a statistic that I heard while I was in high school, which said that only 6% of all the entire scientific literature uh, is produced in Latin America. And coming from Honduras myself and growing up there, um, I was really sad and I was honestly really discouraged. When I, when I told my parents that I was, I wanted to pursue a PhD in neuroscience, even my art teacher was a little bit discouraged. She, everyone made the joke, Oh, you're going to starve. What are you going to do? Are you never going to come back? So I made it my goal to really try to encourage other people. Um, to pursue science, such as I am doing, regardless of what other people tell them and regardless of the fact that we are definitely a minority in the sciences.
1: It's interesting to hear you say that some of the reaction to wanting to become a scientist and wanting to pursue science was kind of this idea of, well, oh no, you won't be able to make a living doing that, where I think in a lot of North American contexts, it would be the reverse. If, If I came home... Uh, after having spent uh, some of my high school life pursuing a lot of science and said, I'd like to be a sculptor, I'd like to be an artist, I think, I think I'd think i get entirely the opposite, actually.
2: Yeah, I would definitely agree that it's quite a different world, where, for example, one of my closest friends to my father uh, majored in economics at Harvard. He was one of the first Hondurans to study at Harvard, and he came back and... It was hard for him to find a job even. Um, it's really hard how in underdeveloped countries, sometimes science is very much put out of the picture almost, and not considered. Whereas in, for example, in the United States, uh, for every dollar that the US puts into the NASA, it it gets $3 back into the economy. So I think that um, underdeveloped countries such as Honduras and my own have really forgotten about the importance of science and how science is very much important to our economic and our social well-being.
1: So your, one of your stated goals for this project is to both communicate what some of the Latin, America, uh, Latin American-inspired science has been, but also to encourage people to take more of an interest in it. And in particular, you're looking to feature... Some Latin, some work done by Latin American scientists. Do you have any favorite work that you're they're thinking about or planning to feature?
2: Oh yes. So I've actually I've tried to do this as a collaborative project where I've actually been requesting input from both my community, which is my university, Emory University, and also the external community, where I've gotten responses from Hispanics all over the world, such as Sweden. Uh, Colombia, Costa Rica, and all over Europe. And it's been really interesting because I've asked them to nominate scientists that they know themselves. And it's really sad to me that most of the scientists that I have so thus far uh, to illustrate my work in have actually been self-discovered by myself by digging through articles, digging through nature, through science, because it's, it's sort of like its own self-proof that even among Hispanic people, there is very much a lack of knowledge of what we're actually doing in the sciences. So, for example, my favorite uh, my favorite scientist right now that I've been really exploring is a ch- is is Mario Hamuy, an astrophysicist for Chile. So I found this um, article called Big Players, which talks about some of the biggest scientists in Latin America right now. And Mario Hamuy is the director of the Millennium Institute of Astrophysics in Santiago, Chile. And I actually was really interested in his work because he actually helped um, to measure the accelerating expansion of the universe. And, and even an asteroid was named after him. So I was really much impressed by it. By how, by how he's actually uh, creating an institute just to bring Chilean scientists from abroad to come back to Chile. And at the same time, what his great contribution to science has been, such that even his name and also the name of Chile has been marked even on an asteroid per se, marked in history.
1: Is there a, a worry within Latin American communities that even when someone does take a really good, a really keen interest in science and does manage to take it far, that it seems like perhaps they have to go away to, to have that interest and to have that career? Um, and that some of the science that actually is being done by Latin Americans is not necessarily being done in Latin America?
2: Oh, yeah. That's definitely very huge. In Latin American countries where I get asked on on a regular basis, both in the U.S. and when I go back home, if I'm ever going to go back home. Um, Most people assume that if I study science, that since I'm pursuing a degree in science, specifically a Ph.D. in research, that I won't be able to do that back home. So most people assume, oh, so you're going to stay in the U.S. And I'm like, no, not necessarily. I mean I can come back to my country and the brain drain for example which is the idea that all the all the all the people that have the potential and the possibility both economically and and socially to to study abroad and get a job abroad will stay abroad is actually a very huge problem in science and in our Latin American countries because our Latin American countries spend millions of dollars in our education and in our healthcare until we grow up um, and get out of high school. And then most of the people I know that study abroad definitely look for the possibility of staying abroad rather than coming back to their country with the new skills and mindsets that they've acquired abroad.
1: It definitely seems like a little bit of a chicken and the egg problem where you want people to come back and use their skill sets that they've developed or even be able to develop them fully within uh, their own countries. But if there's not sort of the infrastructure or the the uh, careers there to support them, then it becomes sort of what has to happen first. I can see that that'd be a tricky problem to try and solve.
2: Definitely. I even I personally, I'm personally open to both possibilities, because as a Honduran, I love my country, and I've seen the example of my own father, who studied political science more than twenty years ago. There was no such thing as political as, as the study of political science back home, and he studied in Louisiana, but came back. And founded his own company and now he's one of the few political scientists recognized by the American Political Science Association that works both in Honduras and abroad to study um, to do research on democracy and other issues, social issues. So I see that example uh, of my own family and see see myself doing the same thing of bringing a new field into an unexplored territory, per se.
1: So now, to keep going with this project, you wanted some help from our listeners. You shared with us a survey link, which you're going to put on our website in the show notes. So what is this survey?
2: So this is actually the first survey. I I would actually like to keep surveys coming as my, as my artwork progresses and my thinking about it and my themes progress. But this survey is basically to analyze um, what, what fields in science are mostly Hispanics involved in and, non-Hispanic, this, uh, and non-Hispanics as well. This is actually a survey for anyone to respond to. But also, it, it asks various questions that you can respond anonymously, such as how has your ethnic background affected your view of science or your ability in science? Or your perceived ability in science. What disadvantages have you felt that you've received via your education or your upbringing when it comes to considering a career in science? Um, also, if you're interested in science, what or who made you interested in science? Who was that role model, or who was, or what was that grain in the sand that t- that sort of sparked this passion in you to study science. So I'm basically sort of studying through, through my surveys, I'm sort of studying what is the mindset of the community that we, that we already have, of the Latino community that we already have in science, and what needs to be improved and what needs to be um, continued
1: specifically are you looking to fill it out are you looking primarily to get people of uh, of Latin American background to fill out the survey or are you looking for a wider range of responses
2: I'm honestly looking for a wider range of responses because it is very important I think it's very important to get both because in my opinion for example one thing is my perceived My perceived difficulties, but at the same time, what what difficulties do other people perceive in me? So I think that it's very important that both Hispanics and non-Hispanics join in this conversation because equality, for me at least, does not involve a single group pursuing its own interests, but the entire community coming together and realizing that something is wrong and that needs to f- be fixed in a um, in a group sort of way and one of and some of the most interesting responses have honestly been by by non-hispanics to my survey um, for example some of them said, um, I love I love some of the responses where I asked I where I asked my my listeners what would you tell Hispanics or Latinos that are, int- that are actually interested in the sciences. So I love that some of them uh, told, told stuff like, you're brilliant and capable no matter what society or anyone has told you. Or we need you. Stuff like that where non-Hispanics are also joining in the conversation and encouraging Hispanics to join the sciences regardless of their differences.
1: Pamela, the project just sounds really cool, and I look forward to seeing it uh, when it's completed. And I hope that you will definitely send us a photo so we can share that on our website with our listeners in the future when the project is completed.
2: Oh, most definitely. Most definitely.
1: (laughs) If you want to learn more about Pamela Romero or her work, we've got links for you up at our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. Remember that she has a survey she would very much like for you to fill out as part of this project. And we also have a link to that survey on the show notes as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People.
3: Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison we get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skepchik at skepchik.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell.